Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. This is Justin Ritchie, along with today's special guest, our European correspondent. His name is Seth Moser Katz, and he's speaking with us from the streets of Rome in Italy. So, Seth, how are you doing over there? Things are great. Just got back from eating a ridiculous amount of pizza, which Rome makes in vast quantities. I've had four cups of coffee. I've had actually two cappuccinos and, and two cafes. Before. You can buy a little tiny cup of coffee for one euro and a cappuccino for the same price. And you put like a little bit of sugar in there because it's super bitter. And the caffeine co- content is about the same as a regular cup of coffee without all the extra water that goes into it. it is a, it's a pretty exciting place. I mean, there's tons and tons of people, and everyone you meet is either uh, Italian or some other European nationality. Been meeting lots of people, and you know, exploring and finding all these architectural landmarks that I've read about and I've seen in movies for my entire life. And it's exciting to actually, you know, look at the Colosseum where you know so much history has gone on. This these these European cities where so much history has just gone down. It's it's kind of ridiculous. And are you taking a lot of photos? So that's an interesting question. I started off taking a lot of photos when I was in Paris, you know, have my iPhone out just shooting and shooting and shooting. But as I, my trip has gone on, and this is this is something I've realized that happens to me as I travel a lot. The same thing kind of happened to me when I when I studied abroad during my, my university years. You start off taking tons and tons of photos and you just, you kind of, you're going along, you're going along, taking more and more and then as you begin to kind of settle into the place and kind of settle into to the fact that you're traveling and the fact that photos really cannot capture what's happening and what you're experiencing, what you're feeling, you kind of stop taking photos and you kind of begin to just look at the culture more as an insider and more as somebody who's experiencing, you know, the food and, and the, the drink and the and the, and the I, mean, I went to a fruit stand today and bought clementines. I don't need to take a picture of clementines because I eat clementines when I'm at home, but it's something that I really wanted and I found it and I was happy about it. I went to you know, the, the Colosseum, a huge uh, monument that so much history has happened. How do you capture that much history in a photograph? I mean, you can't really. I mean, it's something that you can't do. So why even try? I mean, you can explain that to somebody and say, yeah, I was at the Coliseum. There's all this history and stuff that goes on here. This photograph really doesn't do it justice. It's just being able to actually capture a place is unbelievably difficult until you're actually in that place. There's just no way to capture it. That's right. And it's it's more about, I think, more the more you live in a place, the more you find out that so much of human culture 
is just that it's human. And when you travel, you can really see that up close and personal that most people have the same kind of wants and desires in their life. They want family, they enjoy good food, and they enjoy being close and understanding. They enjoy being with one another. And it's something that's very universal. And once you get past the architecture and you get past the language barrier, it's just, it becomes just another place. And speaking of being in a historical place, you're in a very historical place right now with all that's going on in regards to the Euro crisis and political turmoil across Europe. What is it like there on the streets of Rome? Are you seeing any consequences of the Euro crisis there? No, I expected to see a whole lot of protests going on, especially with all I've been reading about the recessions going on in Italy. You would expect to see all kinds of riots in the street and people being upset and places closing. But really, the only protests I've seen were outside of the Roman Parliament building where they're passing some legislation to cut some pensions. And I saw maybe a handful of people out there, uh, one man waving a communist flag. There's more actual police officers outside the Parliament building than there were protesters. There's a whole lot of media shooting B-roll of the Parliament building and reporters there. Not seeing a whole lot of protests in the street, actually. Business kind of goes on as usual. People go about their, their work and go to restaurants, go to the subway. A lot of people on the subway. People are having regular cocktails and not Molotov cocktails? They are, you know. I haven't seen one Molotov cocktail being thrown. I was kind of expecting it, but... So, Justin, who are we talking to today? So today, Seth, it's convenient that you are in Rome because we're speaking with one of the experts on the collapse of the Roman Empire and the dynamics of civilizational collapse around the world. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Joseph Tainter about what it really means to be sustainable what sustainability really means. He's going to talk to us about human innovation. He's going to talk to us about complexity and society and the ways in which the complexity that we develop through our technology leads to problem solving and then leads to more problems and also on diminishing returns. And he even has a few examples from Rome and the Romans that he is going to use to demonstrate all of these concepts that he's talking about. Yes, that's pretty exciting. Let's jump right in. Dr. Joseph Tainter, thanks for joining us today from Logan, Utah. You're the professor of sustainability in the Department of Environment and Society at Utah State University and author of numerous works, including The Collapse of Complex Societies and a scholar on topics of societal collapse, complexity and technology. And today we're here to talk about your latest book, co-written with Tad Patsick at the University of Texas at Austin, Drilling Down the Gulf Oil Debacle and Our Energy Dilemma. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you're the professor of sustainability at Utah State uh, University. University's Department of Environment and Society. And so I wanted to start out by just talking about sustainability really briefly. How would you define sustainability and what does it mean to be sustainable? And is sustainability really what we want in society? 
there are a lot of misconceptions about sustainability, a lot of popular misconceptions. For, for example, that sustainability somehow emerges as a passive consequence of consuming less, that conservation alone produces sustainability. I say sustainability in a more nuanced way. Sustainability arises first as a matter of human values. People will work to sustain that which they value, which is always going to be some familiar aspects of their way of life. So in that sense, sustainability is really the science of continuity. It's the science of how do you maintain or continue a way of life that people value. So you're, you're a professor at Utah State. Do you teach classes there? I do. I teach two classes. One is a graduate seminar that I teach in the fall on theory of humans and the environment. And the second is a seminar that I teach in the spring on sustainability. How do your students typically react when you talk about these ideas of complexity and collapse? Well, these are new ideas for them. They, they come to my classes with some knowledge of sustainability, but usually their knowledge is conventional. They equate sustainability with conservation, which, which as I've indicated, I think is, is oversimplifying things. So the material that I give them on energy and complexity and the possibility of collapse, it seems to be new material. It's new for them. Do they react in, in surprised ways? Are they, are they very blown away by these ideas that you throw at them? I mean, what are their mindsets like when they come into your class versus when they leave? Well, they come in with different backgrounds. We have a sustainability council on campus with some students who are heavily involved in things like conservation and recycling and so forth. And I, I think those students are mostly surprised when they come into my class. Students with less background in it are, I think, less surprised. But it's new material for all of them, and, that, and that's why I teach it. What do you think the biggest misunderstanding that we currently have about sustainability in society uh, is out there? What, what do people usually miss when thinking about sustainability? There are a number of things that people miss. Uh, I, I come from a background as an archaeologist. And in the 1980s, archaeologist and, and historian, and in the 1980s, I did a study of why ancient societies would collapse. And as I did the study, I realized that what I was learning was not just about ancient societies, but it had definite implications for us today and for our future. And so that was why I switched my emphasis to working on sustainability. One of the things I realized doing that study is that sustainability is a long-term process that the factors that make a society sustainable or not sustainable develop over long periods of time, periods that generally exceed a human lifetime. We're talking about periods of generations to centuries. And so sustainability has to be a historical science. We have to know where we are in a process of historical development to understand, are we vulnerable now? Will we be vulnerable to collapse in the future? Are we at a point where we can, in fact, sustain our way of life? So that's one of the first misconceptions because sustainability is not normally approached in a historical context. It's normally approached, uh, as, as I say, as a simple matter of conserving resources, whereas, in fact, sustainability is a long-term process that does involve resources. But you have to look at the, the relationship of society to resources over very long periods of time. The second problem that I see in the approach to sustainability today is the assumption that sustainability comes about simply by conservation. What I see see looking at the historical cases, and we can perhaps get into these a little later in the interview, is that sustainability is a function of success at solving problems. Sustainability emerges from problem solving rather than simply from as a passive consequence of consuming less. So one has to look at how societies have solved problems over time, and particularly at the costs and benefits of solving problems. 
And these evolve over time. The benefit-cost ratio to solving problems is essential to understanding sustainability. Uh, So in a nutshell, that's the essence of my approach. And so when it comes to problem solving, part of the problem that many of the people in the Gulf are trying to solve is uh, energy availability in society and trying to drill in the Gulf and uh, put more oil into our overall societal system. And that led to the Deepwater Horizon uh, catastrophe, which occurred well over a year ago. And that's the focus of your your latest book, Drilling Down. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what caused the Deepwater Horizon event. And are there some deeper lessons behind the Deepwater Horizon event that we can learn and take us to getting a larger picture of energy in society. Certainly there are deeper lessons in in the Deepwater Horizon tragedy, really, and that's why I was interested in writing this book. We divide the Deepwater Horizon accident into what we call proximate and ultimate causes. Proximate causes being the near-term things, activities, oversights on the drilling rig itself that led ultimately to the blowout. The ultimate causes have to do with our dependence on energy, with the complexity of our societies, with the costliness of industrial societies, and with this increasing scarcity of oil. So starting first with the proximate causes, this is really the province of my co-author of the book, Thaddeus Patsek, who's the chair of the Department of Petroleum Engineering at University of Texas, Austin. He singles out a number of factors, um, some of which, most of which I think have been treated in the media, including whether enough centralizers were used in the well, whether there were problems in the drilling, in, in the mud that was used as part of the test of whether the well was holding pressure. And I think he comes down to problems in testing whether the well was holding pressure and possibly even ignoring some results suggesting that it wasn't. The drilling cement that was used was a problem. It probably was not adequate to the job. These are all short-term decisions that were made by people working on the Deepwater Horizon itself, and they reflect what was referred to years ago by Herbert Simon as the problem of humans being unable to understand in full the things that go on in complex systems, being unable to understand the full complexity of some of the social and technological systems and the problems that we deal with. And Simon termed this problem bounded rationality. What it refers to is that humans simply are unable to understand what's happening in a crisis when the crisis involves a complex system that's really beyond human understanding on the spur of the moment. Now, the ultimate question becomes, why are we using complex technologies like the Deepwater Horizon, and why are we looking for oil in places that I call deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous, because that is, in fact, the places where we're looking for oil now. The Deepwater Horizon is the culmination of a long-term process of increasing technological capacity in finding and producing oil, but also increasing complexity and costliness in the technology to produce oil. Now, in 1892, a prospector by the name of Edward Doheny found oil near what's now Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles at a depth of about 140 meters. The remarkable thing is that he drilled his well using a sharpened eucalyptus tree. Now, you contrast that with the technology that we use today to find oil, and you can see how the technology has grown more and more costly with no end in sight and more and more complex. (laughs) Yeah. What is driving this? 
what's driving it is that basically when it comes to using resources, any kind of resource, including oil, we naturally tend to use first the sources that are most economical to exploit, the ones that are easiest to find and most economical to produce from. So this has meant that we have first used the uh, the large pools of petroleum in places like Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, and California. And as we have used up the oil in those reservoirs, and as our society has increased its consumption of oil, we've had to start looking for oil in places where it's more and more difficult to find it and more and more difficult to produce it. Colloquially, it's called plucking the lowest fruit first. And this is what we do with any kind of resource. We always pluck the lowest fruit first. In the case of oil, we have to look at what we call the energy returned on energy invested. It's sometimes given by the acronym EROI, E-R-O-I, or or sometimes E-R-O-E-I, energy returned on energy invested. It takes energy to get energy. It takes energy to find it, to get it out of the ground, to transform it into a form that we can use, and to transport it where we want it. When we first began exploiting these large pools of petroleum in the early 20th century, we had an EROI, a net energy, an energy return on energy invested of about 100 to 1. In other words, for every barrel of oil that we would invest in finding and producing petroleum, we'd get 100 barrels back. In the United States now, that has declined to about 15 to 1. In other words, we're spending more and more energy to find energy, and we're getting less and less back for what we do spend finding it. And this is translated into dollar terms, of course. This is why energy keeps getting more expensive. And But the most important thing is energy terms. What is the net energy that we get back from looking for energy? And for our future, the most important factor is not the gross amount of oil that's left in the earth. There's still a lot of it left. But in fact, the EROI, the net energy that we get from looking for and producing oil. So as we have had to develop more and more complex technologies like the Deepwater Horizon, and as we look for oil in places that, as I say, I call deep, dark, cold, remote, and dangerous, the EROI declines. As I said, it's about 15 to 1 now in the United States. It's still about 25 to 1 out of the Persian Gulf. Globally, I think the average is about 18 to 1, but the trend is downward everywhere. The trend is of the EROI is down. And ultimately, what will curtail our use of oil is not that we run out of oil. We will never run out of oil, but that the profit in producing oil, the energy profit in producing oil will degrade to the point where it's no longer productive to produce oil, where we can no longer get enough back on our expenditure of energy to make finding and producing oil worthwhile. So this is the dynamic that's driving exploration in places like the Gulf of Mexico and production in places in deep water in the Gulf of Mexico and and soon off the coast of Brazil and possibly off the coast of Greenland and other places is the fact that we are forced to look for oil. We've plucked the lowest fruit. We're forced to look for oil in places where it's remote and hard to find, where we require complex and costly technologies to find it, and where the cost both the financial cost and the energy cost of finding and producing oil goes up. So this is what we would call the ultimate cause of the Deepwater Horizon accident, the fact that we have to use complex, risky technologies in remote, dangerous, inaccessible places to find the oil that we continue to need. 
So there's generally no understanding of the energy return on energy invested in mainstream discussions on energy, energy alternatives, and our energy future. Why do you think this is, and do you think that there's a point in the future where we can get these ideas of net energy and energy return into the public thinking? I'm not encouraged in the short term about getting the concept of net energy into public thinking. We can see in our political campaigns how simplistic the discussion of energy is. We see slogans like drill, baby, drill, as if simply more drilling will produce the energy, the petroleum that we need. In fact, if it was simply a matter of drilling, we'd be doing it. Uh, We would not be looking for oil a mile down in the Gulf of Mexico if we could still find enough of it on shore. The problem is that we have plucked the low-hanging fruit, and the net energy, the EROI, the energy returned on energy invested, is declining. We need increasingly complex and costly technologies to produce oil. But these are all subtle concepts that politicians can't squeeze into sound bites. And if they do, some other politician will simply come up with a catchier soundbite like drill, baby, drill, and people always prefer simple answers. We do need an electorate that's better educated about energy. I'm not sure how to accomplish this in in the short term. What I see for the long term is that this is something that ought to be taught to young children at an early age. The importance of energy, how rare energy is, how precious it is, and what it takes to find and produce energy so that as adults, perhaps they would grow up with an ability to understand subtle concepts like net energy and complexity. So it almost seems like common sense that understanding the scarcity that that is appearing to develop would make people fear for the future. Why are people so blind to this inevitability and why go to these dark, deep, cold, remote, and dangerous places to get these last little drops of of energy instead of just trying to create a new kind of energy or move in a different direction? You have to understand the human species to answer that question. Humans did not evolve to be broad-scale thinkers. In our history as a species, there was never evolutionary selection to be able to think broadly in terms of either time or space, to think broadly in terms of generations or centuries, or to think in terms of space beyond our immediate communities and our immediate country. And so most people don't. Most people think in terms of their immediate lives, their livelihoods, uh, their homes, their families, such things as getting the kids to soccer practice and paying the mortgage or the rent every month. These are the things that people think about on a day-to-day basis. People don't think broadly in terms of the evolution of oil exploration or the development of complexity in oil drilling or in our society as a whole. They're not exposed to these concepts, and I think to our educational system they ought to be, But it doesn't occur to most people naturally to think beyond their immediate lives. This is normal humanity, thinking short-term about immediate challenges and opportunities that confront us. So what most people respond to is prices. To most people, prices are the surrogate indicator of the availability or the scarcity of oil. But people tend to misinterpret prices. When prices spike, they tend to think that the oil companies are simply greedy. Now, I don't want to suggest that oil companies aren't greedy, but... The problem is that ultimately increasing scarcity of oil and increasing costliness in finding and producing it is going to drive prices up. So to answer your question, the problem resides in the nature of humanity itself. Humans are not broad-scale thinkers. 
we don't think broadly in terms of time, and we don't think broadly in terms of space. We tend to think narrowly in terms of our immediate lives, and so we think about energy or any other commodity as a commodity, as simply something to be bought and sold and traded, regulated by price. Whereas, in fact, the ultimate determinant is Eroy. It's energy returned on energy invested. Let's buy a house. Let's buy a car. Don't worry, we can put it on the card. Let's get a map. Let's hire a plane. You pick a spot. We can go somewhere insane. And if you don't know it, I'll get what you want it. And baby, you can get it for free. There's nothing to tell you that I can show you. Baby, you can learn it from me. world-shaping events can be tracked in every detail through a variety of media from old-fashioned print to the instant internet. But how many people are really interested in looking further than their nearest shopping mall? Are people aware of what's going on in the world this holiday season? Or are they only interested in shopping? This week, let's talk about that. What do you make of the first Egyptian election since the revolution? I don't know anything about it. Well, what do you think is the importance of it? I don't know anything about it, sorry. <laughs> What's on your mind then? <laughs> Shopping. Well, the downfall of MF Global marked the eighth largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. But here's something you may not know. The collapse of the Wall Street giant is having a huge impact on farmers in the Midwest. Here's how the financial firm, whose problems stemmed from $6.3 billion in exposure to debt-ridden Eurozone countries, created a big mess for farmers thousands of miles away. Dean Toefland is a corn farmer in the small town of Laverne, Minnesota. $200,000 of his money was frozen when MF Global went bust. When I would go through and do a hedging transaction, when I transfer risk from owning and the crop that I'm, I'm producing in the field, I would transfer risk by selling a futures contract. They were the company that handled the transaction on the exchange, so they would go ahead and sell the futures contract and find another buyer to buy it. And then uh, I would collateralize that position with, uh, with assets or cash that were held in an account uh, with them. That a bank account, the cash and, and collateral we have in that bank account is the accounts that, that they're missing, the cash that's been stolen. Now, it's not clear what happened to Dean's money. We reached out to MF Global about his situation, but we haven't heard back. What Dean did is common among farmers. They sell futures contracts to lock in prices as protection from market volatility. If the price of their commodity, like corn, wheat, or soybeans, falls, then they make money because they've secured a higher price. Commodities customers, like gas and oil companies, do the same thing. Their accounts are some of the estimated 38,000 MF Global customer accounts worldwide. Do you agree with Britain's choice to pull out of its embassy in Tehran? Uh, we don't follow the news these days, so I'm not so informed about that. What do you follow these days? Uh, only trip around the city. How do you think the European Union should handle the Greek situation? Let him answer that. Uh, I really don't follow it that closely. No? What have you guys been following in the news? I'll let you know. <laughs> he watches the news. I watch the, uh, the uh, 
uh, what is it, HGTV and the cooking channel. Did you think NATO had a right to oh, bomb this Pakistan? Is, this is getting very political. I'm on a five-day holiday. <laughs> And I'm not going to get into any political discussions. I don't mean to sound not worldly, but I'm paying more attention to what's happening over here than what's happening in another country that's somewhat not affecting us. Do you think that's what most people feel? Probably. probably. What about you? Yeah, probably. If you've pulled the trigger on a new firearm this holiday season, join the club. As in your neighborhood shooting club. Because faster than a speeding bullet, guns are going out the door. We can, you know, take it apart before the class. Not right away, of course. There is that 10-day waiting period. Bob Norgard wasn't caught off guard. Okay, so half today is $391.58. He's making his purchase today, so he'll have his firearm under the Christmas tree. As he joins a growing number of people who say they're simply doing what they need to do to, to protect themselves and their families. This surge in gun sales, the best holiday sales season in three years, according to the Firearms Dealers Association, got a shot in the arm on Black Friday. Black Friday sales were off the charts this year. And people are just coming in to protect themselves. By now you might be wondering what I'm wondering. So who's buying guns this year? Here's a clue. This is your uh, Charter Arms Pink Lady. More women are buying guns than ever before. The reasons are simple. I think there's just a lot of things going on in the world that are, you know, getting people thinking. And gun stores um, say they're ready the to keep this hot streak in sales right on target. Sales are also up this holiday season, by the way, for pepper spray and stun guns. I guess there, I think there are four ways to convince people that uh, there is a problem. For the most part, societies change most rapidly when forced to do so by some catastrophic situation. Uh, it's interesting that information, I've been an educator all of my life, and it's taken me a long while to realize that new information per se very rarely changes behavior. There's always a few people who respond and are able to move forward. But if I talk to an audience of 500 people and they you know, tend to believe what I'm, I'm saying, it doesn't mean they all go out and change their lifestyles. We tend to be propelled more by catastrophe than by new information. The second thing is other forms of coercion. The gun to the head is a, a fairly prominent way in our planet, unfortunately, of getting people to change their ways. But uh, more mild ways are just the legal system. Uh, so we really ought to be recognizing that our whole culture, society, is really a set of laws to uh, force us to do things that we otherwise would not do because they're good for the culture as a whole. So, so I think there have to be new rules and regulations around uh, consumer behavior to make this a more sustainable system. And one of the ways to do that, and this is a third mechanism, is through the price mechanism. If you think of energy, for example, uh, the only time that energy use per capita has declined significantly in the developed world is when prices have risen very steeply and, and unexpectedly. So in the late 1970s and early 1980s, during the, uh, I guess, the Iranian war and the uh, Arab oil embargo, and then of course about two years ago when energy prices spiked, spiked around the world and in effect stimulated the crash of the, the, the finance market. I think there's a very tight relationship between high energy prices and this sense of insecurity that then led to the financial crash of the last couple of years. So rising prices will change behavior very substantially. We saw the collapse of Detroit. We saw, we've seen now a great reduction in U.S. energy consumption. Uh, people do respond. This is another form of coercion, of course. It's not voluntary. But if you can't afford to buy a lot of stuff because the prices are now reflecting true scarcity, then consumption goes down. 
The third mechanism is uh, what we're doing now, I guess. It's, it's called social learning, but it takes 40 years for a new idea to sort of penetrate to the point where it has mass appeal. Maybe a little less, 20 years in some cases, but if you think of the great struggles for such simple things as the right for women to vote or female liberation or civil rights, these are long-term struggles that, uh, and it's a very slow way to change the people. So unfortunately, uh, we seem to be stuck between having to recognize that new information isn't the way to get people to move and having to be very uncomfortable about waiting for change to be so dramatic that they're forced to move. But we seem to be caught in that way. Mere persuasion doesn't seem to do it at this point. Not for the mass social movement that we need here. Whether or not you've crossed everything off your list this holiday, the bottom line is you might want to consider taking a break from shopping to find out what's going on in the rest of the world. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Joseph Tainter about collapse and complexity. So if you ask a modern Westerner about problem solving, we were talking about problem solving in today's society, they of course point to technology as a way we solve very complex problems in society. Why is America and Western countries in general so insistent that technology will yield a, a constant improvement in our way of life? Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is simply our cosmology, our belief system. We believe in technology. We believe that through innovation, we made ourselves wealthy and solved problems in the past, and that through innovation, we can continue to solve problems. And the second is experience. We have, in fact, solved a lot of problems through technology and innovation up to this point, and so we simply assume that that will continue forever. So our belief system is that Technology will solve problems, that all we need are economic incentives, and there will always be innovations to solve problems, and that therefore we don't need to worry about resources. This is deeply embedded in, in our cosmology, in our whole outlook, uh, and, and in our belief and expectations about the future. The problem is that we can't expect it to forever. Innovation, like other things that we do, is subject to diminishing returns. Innovation is like oil exploration. We pluck the lowest fruit first, and after that, we have increasing costs and increasing complexity and diminishing returns. In the history of scientific disciplines, we tend to make the easiest discoveries first. For example, electricity and penicillin are no longer out there waiting for us to discover them. Instead, we have moved on to science that's far more complex, that involves large interdisciplinary teams and very high costs. and so it costs more and more to innovate. In the past, a single scientist like Charles Darwin or Thomas Edison could develop whole new fields of knowledge or whole new industries on their own or perhaps with a few assistants in the case of Thomas Edison. And you think of Gregor Mendel who developed the field of genetics simply working in a monastery. Today, in contrast, science is done by large interdisciplinary teams and interdisciplinary teams are costly. The reason why we need teams to tackle scientific problems today is because the problems have grown more complex and more costly, much as petroleum exploration has grown more complex and more costly. So we spend more and more on innovation and we're experiencing diminishing returns for our investment. I've done a research project on innovation with a couple of colleagues. First is Dr. Deborah Strumsky at the University of North Carolina, and the second is Dr. Jose Lobo, who's at Arizona State University. And we looked at 
patents in the United States, the United States patent system, but also patents around the world, because about half of United States patents are granted to foreign entities, foreign individuals or foreign corporations. And with a database starting in 1974, what we found is that the productivity of our system of innovation, in fact, has been declining that productivity has declined over this entire period, and we measure productivity as patents per inventor. How many patents does an individual inventor produce? So essentially, this is the equivalent of our standard measure of labor productivity in the economy as a whole, output per worker. What we find is that patents per inventor have declined by 22% over the period from 1974 through 2005. So in other words, over about a 30-year period, let's say the span of an average scientist's career, the productivity of innovation has gone down by more than 20%. And there's no indication that this trend won't continue. In fact, the trend is going to continue because it is growing more and more costly to innovate. And at the same time, the products of innovation, the patents that we get per inventor are going down. So what one asks from this, well, why do we always have new innovations? Why is it that, that when we go into an electronics store, there's new products every few months? Well, the reason is simply because the enterprise of science has grown so large. We spend more and more of our gross domestic product on innovation. And so that's how we keep the flow of new products and, and new technologies coming. But we can't keep expanding the share of our gross national product that we spend on innovation, or as one scientist put it 50 years ago, the day will come when everyone will have to be a scientist. We simply can't keep forever expanding how much we spend on innovation and how much of our gross domestic product we spend on innovation. So this is why I think that innovation in the future will not be as productive as we've known it in the past, that we cannot rely on innovation forever to solve our problems. Now, innovation is not going away soon. Innovation is not going away overnight, uh, certainly for the near future, perhaps for the next generation or even two generations. We're going to continue to have high levels of technological innovation. But the productivity of the innovation will, of you know, the innovation system will continue to decline so that we are going to reach a point where it's simply no longer productive to invest in innovation anymore. And at that point, we're, we're going to be unable to solve the problems of such things as looking for resources that are more and more difficult to find. We were talking earlier about energy returned on energy invested. And from what you were just saying, it sounds like we're reaching a peak in our ability to receive innovation from dollars invested in scientific enterprises. So we're reaching like a productivity per innovation uh, return on investment in a way. Are, are we really reaching this limit? And if so, how do we break the news to the scientific community? Do you think they just reject that that hypothesis there? or Well, they, they can't reject it. We have the data to demonstrate it. This has actually been suspected uh, as far back as the 1870s, and, and there's some research by a fellow named Jonathan Eubner suggesting that, in fact, worldwide innovation relative to population may have peaked as early as the 1870s. Uh, the problem is that we don't have good data going back that far. Our data on patents per inventor really only go back as far as, as the early 1970s, which is why we started our study in 1974. But if you look at the question objectively, th this can't be questioned. Uh, we, we have the data to demonstrate that, in fact, the productivity of innovation, it, it not only has reached a plateau, but it's been declining, and it looks like it will continue to decline. So how do you factor in the genius factor? I know that some people talk about that. You know, some somebody comes along and has a, some 
complex breakthrough that just pushes our society into the next level. How do you factor in that kind of human genius factor? Well, the first thing I'll say is that if your narrative about the future includes the phrase, and then a miracle happens, that's not a reliable <laughs> basis for assessing the future. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, and that's essentially what, what you're suggesting. Now, no one can perfectly predict the future. There's always a possibility that whole new fields of technology will be developed that will give us the wealth to continue to look for energy in more and more difficult places. The problem is that even in the newest technological fields, the newest fields recognized in the patent system are biotechnology and nanotechnology. Even in these fields, these brand new fields, productivity of innovation has been declining. They have been declining in a manner that's parallel to the decline in, in older technological fields. And what this tells us is that science overall is becoming harder and harder to invest in in, in order to achieve the outputs that we need from it. So th there's simply no question about this. The productivity of innovation is declining and it will continue to do so. Aren't we just uh, hopping a skip away from a breakthrough that solves our energy problems? That's what I always hear about in, in the media and in and, and general discussions about energy policy, that we're just one step away from a solar energy breakthrough that'll get us to the point where it can compete with fossil fuels. Well, I, I wish that were the case, and, and part of me hopes that it's the case. The problem is that when we looked at productivity of innovation in the energy sector, we found that innovation in renewable energy sources is trending the same way as innovation in older energy sources. That innovation in wind and solar energy, the productivity has been declining just as it has been in other older energy technologies. And what this suggests is that these areas, wind and solar, may already be technologically mature and that we cannot expect some technological miracle or breakthrough out of these, what we can look for from them for the future are continued small incremental improvements, but it's possible that the major breakthroughs have already been made. So wind and uh, solar are not growing the way that we've been told? These are not going to take the place of, of fossil fuels? Whether they can take the place of fossil fuels is an open question. The problem with renewable energy sources is that they tend to have what we would call a low energy density. They tend to have little productivity per unit um, compared to fossil fuels. Solar energy is not a very productive way to run an industrial society unless you use very large land areas. It's been estimated, for example, that if England were to rely on renewable energy to supply it with the energy per capita that it enjoys today, this would take all of the land area of England. In other words, it's not possible to produce the energy per person that we enjoy today using renewable energy technologies without taking in enormous areas of land. My colleague Tad Patsek in the Drilling Down book discussed the Solar One solar energy plant in Nevada, which is a vast plant. Uh, takes up several square kilometers of land. And he, he calculates that if we were to use plants like that to supply all of the energy needs of the United States, it would take over 200,000 of them. Well, over a period of several decades, perhaps we could develop that many solar energy plants. Of course, we have the problem that 
the sun only shines half the time, so we have we have storage problems. But this is going to be costly. The cost is going to be in converting areas of land to become essentially industrial energy production sites. So I don't want to suggest that we can't meet our energy needs with renewable energy, but it's going to be environmentally costly to do so. It's going to take large areas of land to produce the energy that we would need from renewable sources. And this is going to generate political conflict uh, in, in any industrialized country where large areas of land are, are converted to solar collectors or to wind farms or areas of coastline converted to wave energy production. Uh, there's been a controversy for several years about a proposal to place wind generators off of Martha's Vineyard in, in Massachusetts. And the controversy is that people don't want to have to see these things on the horizon, even though they would be well out to sea and barely visible. And we can expect this kind of environmental conflict to be repeated over and over and over. Now, if we were to make a transition to renewable energy in this way by converting vast amounts of land to renewable energy production, I think in a generation or two, it would be accepted as normal. People would grow up with it and they would be used to it. But over the short term, in the initial development stages, it would not be accepted. It would generate a lot of environmental conflict. And that goes back to the thing you were talking about, how humans have a hard time looking more than two feet in front of them. Can I ask you about biofuels? Are biofuels go along the same kind of track, the diminishing returns, and, they, and then people can't really use them? Is, is that the same kind of way of thinking there? Well, there are two problems with biofuels. One is politics and the other you might call truth in advertising. The question about biofuels is, do they in fact yield a net energy gain or do they in fact consume as much energy as they produce? And it depends on how you calculate it. If you calculate it one way, you can show that biofuels might show a small amount of energy gain, although really rather low. If you calculate it involving all of the factors that have to go into producing biofuels, Biofuels are a net energy wash. They don't actually produce any net energy gain. Now, part of what's involved here is, depends on, on, on what plants you use. Um, there are some indications that switchgrass, for example, may be more productive than, say, corn ethanol. But again, you get into the problem of having to use large land areas to produce energy, in this case, switchgrass, that yields a small energy margin, a small net energy gain, and the question becomes, can we in fact commit such large land areas to producing plants for energy when so much of the world goes hungry, when so much of the world could use food produced on those lands? So what you're describing is that a transition to some type of alternative to oil, no matter what that may be, would be a really complex transition. And one of the areas that you're focusing on in your research is complexity. Could you talk about the connection between technology and complexity? Oh, certainly. Back in the 1980s, when I did the study of why ancient societies collapsed, I decided that the essence of the problem was why do societies grow more complex and then suddenly lose that complexity when they collapse. So we have to talk about what do we mean by complexity because there are many definitions of it. In human societies, complexity involves the development of systems that have more institutions, more social roles, more occupations, more and more elements of technology. In other words, systems that have more parts and more different kinds of parts. And the parts have to be organized. Parts have to be integrated to form a functioning whole, a functioning system. Now, one of our assumptions about 
complexity. There's been a tendency, again, this is part of our cosmology, there's been a tendency to think that civilization, which is really a very complex society, emerged solely through our own creativity. That, in other words, we pulled ourselves up by the, by the bootstraps from a condition of simple society where people live by hunting and gathering or simple agriculture to what are called civilizations. The problem with this is that, is that it's, it's a myth. It's part of our ancestor myth. The reason is that complexity is not free. It takes energy to be complex. As a society grows more complex, it simply costs more. Now, we count the cost in terms of things like money or time or labor, but ultimately all of those are transformations of energy. So as a society grows more complex, it takes more and more energy to support it. What I found looking at ancient societies that collapsed is that they became more complex to solve problems, that complexity, in fact, is a problem-solving strategy. Now, to explain that a little bit, look at, for example, how we have responded to the problem of terrorism. Look at how we've responded to it here in the United States. We developed new government agencies, Department of Homeland Security, Transportation Security Administration. We've developed new technologies. We've developed new kinds of roles in the security system, new kinds of occupations in security. In other words, we've responded by complexity, by developing a more complex society, and of course that costs. You look at the realm of technology. How have we solved the problem of searching for oil in places that are more and more remote? Well, we've solved it through increasing complexity in technology. You look at transportation. How are we responding to a perceived problem of energy becoming in short supply, particularly petroleum, and the problems of pollution and climate change? Well, we now think, apparently, that the solution is to develop automobiles that have two engines where previously one would suffice, in other words, hybrid cars. Hybrid cars are more complex. They have more parts, more different kinds of parts, and they have software to integrate the parts. The software provides the organization. So we solve problems by becoming more complex. So complexity costs. We solve problems by becoming more complex. And so over time, what you have to look at is the benefit-cost ratio to complexity, the benefit-cost ratio to solving problems. What I found in looking at ancient societies is that they would grow more complex and then reach the point of diminishing returns to complexity, where it simply cost more and more to be the society that they were. And when this point was reached, they would come to the point where they would be fiscally weakened, the population would become discontented, and they would become increasingly vulnerable to collapse. In a nutshell, this is the relationship of energy to complexity and to problem solving. Sustainability, as I said earlier, is an outcome of success at solving problems. The challenge to sustainability is that it takes resources to solve problems. It takes energy and our investment in solving problems by becoming more complex ultimately reaches a point of diminishing returns where we spend more and more and more simply to remain as the kind of society that we are. And this is clearly exemplified in our search for oil in places where it's increasingly hard to find and produce from. People seem to be so very optimistic about technology, and they fail to factor in the complexity entirely. Why do we miss it? And what would a world that understood complexity look like? What I find when I talk to audiences of people who aren't academics, when I talk to just audiences of, of ordinary people, is that they do understand complexity because they experience it in their lives. They don't have a word for it. 
or they may have the word complexity, but they don't understand why their lives are complex and complicated. I find that when I explain it to them that, in fact, they understand it. So I'm actually fairly optimistic that the population as a whole could understand complexity. It's a question of how would you educate the vast numbers of people on Earth about it? How would you reach them? We go back to the early years of education, and I, and I often think that if I was 30 years younger I, and know what I know now, I might spend more time talking perhaps to K-12 educators, trying to get them to teach children at an early age about energy and complexity at the age where children are, are able to understand that, and understanding how societies change over the long term and why societies become complex and costly over the long term. I was just wondering, what does complexity look like in our daily lives? You were saying that people kind of have this base understanding for complexity, but they don't really know how to describe it so much. What does it look like as we go about our daily activities? Well, think of simply how people feel pressured for time today, especially families raising children. There are simply so many activities that have to be done in the course of a day. Children have to be gotten to school, have to make sure they brought their homework with them. Sometimes they have to be driven to school early for band or some kind of practice or something else. Parents go to their jobs where they have to deal with computers and emails and regulations and processes. At the end of the day, there's more things that need to be done. Children have to be taken to practice for some sport or other. There's shopping to be done. Maybe the car needs to be maintained. Come home and and people are so harried that they probably either take something out or throw something in the microwave for dinner. Then the children's homework needs to be done. Um, the children's computers need to be monitored to make sure that they're not going to any kinds of dangerous websites. And all of these activities that have to be conducted during the course of a day amount to complexity in people's lives. And people sense it. They feel it. And they feel it through pressure of time and pressure to do too many different kinds of things during the course of the day. It wasn't like this in the human past. In the human past, people felt pressures, but they felt different kinds of pressures. They felt pressures to simply have enough to eat uh, or, or, or to have some cash money. Whereas today, we tend to feel time pressure, and it's because of complexity in our lives. And this is why when, when I talk to people about complexity, they do understand it. What they don't understand is how it came about. Complexity, as I said a short while ago, increases to solve problems. And it's usually successful at solving problems. When we're confronted with a problem, say the problem of terrorism, we increase in complexity because it seems like the sensible thing to do. Complexity can be seductive. We realize that there's a cost to solving the problem of terrorism, but we're willing to pay the cost. What we don't understand is that the costs of being a complex society like ourselves accumulate. They build up and up and up until finally the costs overwhelm us. So we have the cost of combating terrorism added to the cost of everything else that, say, the federal government, for example, does, all of which are programs that were instituted to solve problems or perhaps to seize opportunities and that were considered reasonable and affordable at the time. So complexity grows by small steps. Each step seems reasonable and affordable at the time, but complexity sneaks up on you. The costs sneak up on you so that ultimately the costs can overwhelm the society and send it to the point where I think we are now, where we've simply reached a point of diminishing returns for our efforts to solve problems. It simply becomes more and more costly to take on the complexity that we need to solve future problems on top of the complexity we've already taken on to solve all of the problems up to this point. The blinds here are so sharp and they cut. The light from a primitive sun You know I really want to have 
to increase the supply of oil, especially here at home. So in June, I called on Congress to lift the legislative ban that prevents offshore exploration on the outer continental shelf. There is now a growing agreement across our country that the government should permit the exploration and development of these offshore oil resources. American drivers on co uh, are counting on Congress to lift the ban on offshore exploration, and so are American workers. And the spill in the Gulf, which is just heartbreaking, only underscores the necessity of seeking alternative fuel sources. We're not going to transition out of oil next year or 10 years from now. But think about it. Part of what's happening in the Gulf is that oil companies are drilling a mile underwater before they hit ground and then a mile below that before they hit oil. With the increased risks, the increased costs, it gives you a sense of where we're going. We're not going to be able to sustain uh, this kind of fossil fuel use. This planet can't sustain it. And think about when China and India, where consumers there are starting to buy cars and use energy the way we are. So we've known that we've had to shift in a fundamental way, and that's true for all of us. America needs to take every reasonable and responsible step we can do to reduce pressure on gasoline and energy prices. That's precisely what my administration is doing. We're working to expand domestic oil production. And at the same time, we're working to speed the development of new clean and alternative energy resources, expanding the use of alternative fuels, and investing in next generation fuels such as cellulosic ethanol and biodiesel, and increasing the supply of clean, safe energy made right here in the United States of America. The time for action is now. This is a difficult period for millions of American families. Every extra dollar they have to spend because of high gas prices, one less dollar they can use to put food on the table or to pay the rent or meet their mortgages. We can have an energy policy that makes sense. Uh, people here in Texas understand that is a jobs generator. But we've got to look forward. We've got to look to the future. We've got to capture the spirit of American ingenuity. And when I proposed it, I didn't do it in front of some environmental group. I went to Detroit, to the automakers, and I told them they had to change their ways. I told them Toyota and Honda is running circles around you because you are not investing in the clean energy needs of the future. And I have to admit, when I spoke, the room was really quiet. Nobody clapped. But that's okay, because part of what you need for the next president is somebody who will not just tell you what they think you want to hear, but will tell you what you need to hear, will tell you the truth about how we are going to move America forward. It's amazing how far we've come in 200 years, just three human lifetimes, from the beginning of industrialism till now. But where are we headed? We can't keep doubling human population. We can't keep dumping carbon in the atmosphere. We can't keep ruining topsoil. We can't keep growing population and consumption or basing our economy on depleting fossil fuels. We can't just print more money to solve the debt crisis. It's been an exhilarating ride, but there are limits. Now, it's not the end of the world, but we have to do four things fast. Learn to live without fossil fuels, adapt to the end of economic growth as we've known it, support seven billion humans and stabilize population at a sustainable level, and deal with our legacy of environmental destruction. 
In short, we have to live within nature's budget of renewable resources at rates of natural replenishment. Can we do it? We have no choice. Alternative energy sources are important, but none can fully replace fossil fuels in the time we have. Also, we've designed and built our infrastructure for transport, electricity, and farming to suit oil, coal, and gas. Changing to different energy sources will require us to redesign cities, manufacturing processes, healthcare, and more. We'll also have to rethink some of our cultural values. None of our global problems can be tackled in isolation, and many cannot be fully solved. We have to prepare for business as unusual. Our best goal is resilience, the ability to absorb shocks and keep going. If we do nothing, we still get to a post-carbon future, but it will be bleak. However, if we plan the transition, we can have a world that supports robust communities of healthy, creative people and ecosystems with millions of other species. One way or the other, we're in for the ride of a lifetime. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Dr. Joseph Tainter about his recent book, Drilling Down. What you were describing earlier is this complex interplay between needing more energy to find more energy to solve even more problems. And do you think there's a way to break this dynamic? Because wouldn't it just lead to this constant interplay between these two dynamics and that, that would lead to failure and collapse? When you're faced with a problem of diminishing returns to complexity, there are several courses that you can take. One course is that you pay the cost today by shifting the cost to the future. This is largely what we do by borrowing money, what governments, particularly the federal government, does by borrowing money. It solves current problems by shifting the cost to the future. And this has historically been the course that's been pursued by ancient societies. The Roman Empire, for example, solved problems, particularly in the third century AD, by debasing the silver currency and by growing in complexity, which required more and more expenditures of money and taxing the peasants. This was essentially a strategy of paying for current problems by shifting the costs onto the future, and, and it ultimately undermined them and led to the collapse of the Roman Empire. And that's essentially the strategy that we're following today. And as we can see here and even especially in Europe, those bills are coming due. We've been following this strategy for so long. We've been shifting costs onto the future for so long that, in fact, the future has arrived. We've reached the point where those bills have come due, and, and so now in many industrial countries, we're facing a future of austerity. Another strategy is to find a subsidy to pay for complexity and problem solving. This is also what we've done. We've paid for complexity through fossil fuels. But fossil fuels are essentially the geological equivalent of, of an endowment from a dead ancestor. Fossil fuels are the accumulation of solar energy from millions of years ago. And so we've been drawing, you can think of them as a bank account that can't be replenished or it can be replenished over very, very long periods of time. So we've been drawing down this bank account, we've been spending it, and we've reached the point where we can't continue to draw it down at an increasing rate as we've done in the past. The other options to dealing with complexity are not attractive. One option is don't solve your problems. And no one wants to adopt that option. Another option, is, <laughs> another option is simply to collapse, to revert to being a simpler society. But a collapse today would be gruesome. Millions of people, hundreds of millions of people would die if, if civilizations collapsed today. 
perhaps 80% of the people on Earth today are alive because of oil. If it was not for oil, we wouldn't have the abundance of food that we have. We wouldn't have the industrial medical systems that we have. And we today and our ancestors for several generations were alive because those things were provided by the wealth that comes from fossil fuels. So if there was to be a collapse with less consumption of energy and less energy per capita, that would be gruesome. It would be the worst collapse in, in human history, where hundreds of millions of people would die within a relatively short period of time. They would die from starvation, they would die from diseases, and they would die from wars. So 80% of, of the population is supported by oil. That is that is a crazy large number of people. Do you see collapse happening right now? And if so, how are you personally preparing for collapse? I don't, I don't see us having a collapse on the scale of the collapses of ancient societies in the near future. My seat of the pants assessment is that this is probably not a real threat until perhaps the middle of this century, perhaps another couple of generations. But at that point, if we stay on the course that we're on now, I'm very concerned that actually we may be facing a collapse, um, a, a rapid simplification of societies, a rapid reduction in population. And this, this is something that's just too gruesome to contemplate. As far as preparing for it personally, I don't. I don't know how I could prepare for it personally. I don't know how anyone could. I'm old enough that I grew up back in, uh, in in the Cold War when people would build fallout shelters and expect to be able to survive on their own with stockpiles of food. This is just a, a, a naive scenario for how people survive. People survive not as individuals but through communities. And so the way to survive a collapse or, or a breakdown of society is, is through building communities. But as for myself personally, I, I'm, I'm not preparing for it. If, if it happens in my lifetime, it happens. In the book, Drilling Down, and in the focus of a lot of your research, you wrote quite a bit about previous empires, the, the Romans, the Mayans. In what major ways are our lives now different from those that lived in the empires of the past? Specifically, let's take, for example, the Romans. How is life different from the Romans, from what we see in movies or on TV? Well, what you see on movies or television is depictions of the Roman Empire as, as a society of great wealth and opulence. In, in fact... That was only about 3% of the population. The Roman Empire was actually more like a third world society of today, where the majority of people lived on the small margins of production that you can get from solar energy, in other words, by farming, subsistence farming, and were desperately poor and vulnerable to famine and to wars and conquest by their neighbors. The Romans followed a strategy which is somewhat like the one that we have followed. That is to say, during their expansion phase, in the last few centuries BC, they built their empire by conquering the Mediterranean and Northwestern Europe. During this period, when they would conquer an area, they would appropriate the wealth of that, of that area, make it into a province and appropriate the wealth. The wealth would be precious metals, works of art, and people who would be enslaved. Now, all of these were the products of accumulated solar energy. In an agrarian society, these things all have to be produced ultimately by the use of solar energy. So the Romans would take the solar energy that had been stored up by conquered people and then use it to pay for further expansion. And this is essentially the same thing that we do today. We are taking solar energy that was accumulated in the past and using it to grow and expand our societies and to live as we do. So our strategy and the Roman strategy are actually rather similar. Ultimately, the Romans reached a point where, and this happens to every empire, where you simply can't continue to expand. It's 
too costly to expand, the frontier provinces are too far away, and it's simply not worthwhile. When this happened to the Romans, then they had to live on a fixed energy budget, which was the annual solar energy. And from early on, this was simply not enough to fund the empire. And so what you find they were doing was from about the year 64 on, they took their primary precious metal currency, which was a silver coin called the denarius, about the diameter of an American dime, originally a very high-value pure silver coin, and they began adulterating it. They began debasing it by adding copper into the currency, and this allowed them to extend their supplies of silver and produce more and more coins from the same amount of silver. Well, the trouble is they continued down this slope, and they had to continue down the slope. They started out in the first century AD with a beautiful coin that was about 98 to 99% pure silver. They wound up in the year 268 AD, two centuries later, a little over two centuries later, with a coin that was down to 2% silver. So in other words, their money had lost its value. And of course, this was inflationary, and it was all part of a strategy of solving current problems by deferring the costs to the future. It's the same thing we do by borrowing. The crisis of the Roman Empire came in the 3rd century AD, in part because they were fiscally weakened and militarily weakened. There were foreign invasions and constant civil wars over a period of about 50 years during the course of the 3rd century AD. And the empire was simply devastated. At one point, it broke up into three separate empires. But in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries, a series of reforming emperors came along, Diocletian and Constantine. People are probably familiar with the name Constantine, who saved the empire in part by increasing the complexity of the government. They established new imperial capitals in different parts of the empire. Each imperial capital had to have its own staff and bureaucracy. They took the provinces and subdivided them into many smaller provinces, uh, which made it harder for provincial governors to rebel, and they doubled the size of the army. This was very, very costly. They increased in complexity, and they increased in scale to solve their problems. This was very costly, so they had to keep increasing taxes on the peasants. And this was beyond what a subsistence society could support on a fixed energy budget. The energy budget could not really be increased. It depended on yearly agricultural production. And so we hear terrible stories of peasants not being able to pay their taxes, peasants abandoning their lands, peasants even selling their own children into slavery because they couldn't feed them. And so what we find is that because of the costs that the Romans incurred to solve their problems, the costs rose higher and higher on a fixed energy budget, and so they were heavily into a problem of diminishing returns. It cost more and more and more simply to be Roman society, to be the Roman Empire, and they couldn't afford the costs. They went from a situation where they were essentially living off interest, that is, living off yearly agricultural production, to consuming their capital, their capital being producing lands and peasant population. And this weakened them fiscally so much that by the 5th century AD, the Western Empire was simply no longer able to defend itself, and they collapsed and plunged Europe into uh, what we know as the Dark Ages. So expanding armies and large military forces sounds a little bit like what we are seeing now a little bit. Do you see our examples throughout history of civilizations that choose simplicity instead of complexity in responding to problem solving and avoiding collapse? And do societies really choose to succeed or fail? Maybe as Jaron Dybin might argue. It's naive to suggest that societies choose to succeed or fail. No society would choose to fail. In answering your question, I know of only one large complex society that 
that survived by systematically simplifying. When the Roman Empire collapsed, it, it was the western part of the empire that collapsed that proceeded into what we call the Dark Ages. The Eastern Roman Empire survived and we know it today as the Byzantine Empire. But it experienced a similar crisis in the middle of the 7th century AD when it lost half of its land to Arab forces who were newly converted to Islam. And the Arabs continued to advance on Byzantine territory, and it looked like the Byzantine Empire was going to be conquered by the Arabs. The problem was that the Byzantines had lost half their revenue. They responded, and they survived ultimately by simplifying. They disbanded their professional army, and settled soldiers on the land as something like a peasant militia, where they were paid a much lower salary and were expected to provide for themselves from their farms. The government also simplified. The government and civil administrations merged. Most of the cities across the Byzantine Empire were abandoned and populations contracted to fortified hilltops. There's very little literature from this period, the period sometimes known as the Byzantine Dark Age. And so the Byzantines went through what amounts to a collapse, a systematic simplification. But it's a collapse that allowed them to survive and to continue at least some semblance of the society that they had had. So the Byzantines, in a way, are an example of what is sometimes advocated for our own society, simplification and lower consumption. The good news from the Byzantine example is that they showed that it can be done. The bad news is that they didn't do it voluntarily. They did it under duress. They did it only when their backs were to the wall. So it is possible for societies to simplify, but I know of only one society that did it, and they didn't do it by choice. Is that what it takes for a society to actually make the changes? Do they need to have their back to the wall, to have the gun against their head and say, if you don't change, 80% of your population is going to die? Is that what needs to happen? Well, again, we come down to the point I made earlier about humans not being broad-scale, long-term thinkers. Yes, that is what is needed. Um, people today respond primarily to the mechanism of prices. People will act to consume less and to conserve on the basis of prices, not on the basis of abstractions about the future. The population as a whole does not respond to abstractions about the future. They, ex they respond to the pressures they feel in their daily lives. And so really the response to the kind of problems that we're facing, which ought to be a long-term response, unfortunately are likely to come about only when we reach a point of crisis, when people feel the pressure in their daily lives, particularly the pressure of, of prices. So how do you think maybe a historian of the future will look back and view this time in, in human history? Well, we're assuming that societies of the future have historians. Um, <laughs> That's right. So let's, let's go ahead and assume that the a society maybe yeah. in, in 100 years has a historian and is looking back well, we'll, at our time. Yeah, we, I mean, we'll, we'll assume that societies of the future are complex enough and wealthy enough to support people like me. I think that the historian of the future is going to look back at precisely the things that we've been talking about and suggest that these were the problems that we faced and that either we did solve or didn't solve problems of increasing scarcity of resources, particularly petroleum, problems of increasing complexity in our society, problems of increasing costliness of our society, and the problem of the bills finally coming due, which we see in the fiscal crises here in this country and, and particularly in Europe. The bills have come due, and a historian of the future is going to be able to look back and say, yes, that was when the bills came due. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. One can be optimistic. Uh, we are a species that muddles through. That's all we've ever really done. And, and here we are today. We've muddled through, one might say, fairly well to this point. 
But the challenges of the future are real and they are very serious and they require long-term thinking of the type that we're not inclined to do. So if historian of the future is going to have rich material to work with, but I don't know whether a historian of the future will be writing about successful resolution of problems or writing about collapse. So the, the theme of this talk, I feel like, has been the short-sightedness of humans and all the examples that we find throughout history point to that as a continual trend that humans again and again make mistakes over and over with the way that they organize their societies and the way that they overlook so much of the long-term parts of their society. Is there a way to change this fundamental flaw in human nature or is, is this something that, as you say, helps us to muddle through and to make our way even with the, the flaws that we so often find ourselves faced with? I don't know if you can describe short-term thinking as a flaw in human nature. It's simply how we evolved. We evolved to think in narrow, limited terms, in terms of our immediate environment and our immediate lives. So I don't think you can call that a flaw, but it is something that is detrimental to the problems that we face today. Today's problems require us to think and plan long-term. And as I said uh, earlier in this interview, sustainability is a function of long-term trends. We have to understand long-term trends, and sustainability needs to be a historical science. And Americans in particular are averse to history. We hate studying it in school. It's about as popular as algebra. And yet we have to understand history. What I keep coming back to is the need to change our K-12 through educational system so that students are taught at an early age to be curious about the world at large and about where we are in history. This is something, as I've said, that doesn't come naturally to people, but as I like to say, we also didn't evolve to live by clocks, but many of us learned to do so. To express some optimism, I think K-12 through educators could be doing a better job of teaching children, to teach children about energy, to teach children about history, to teach children about how our lives came to be as they are and what that means in terms of energy, so that hopefully in a generation, children would grow up with at least a greater awareness of the importance of thinking long-term. Now, with my own students, this is one of the main things that I try to teach, but, but my students are university students, and I find that many of them haven't absorbed this lesson when they were younger. It's important that students be taught this lesson younger so that they come to think this way naturally. They come to think naturally in terms of long-term trends. Any listeners that have resonated with what you have had to say and have read your books perhaps and really find that this, this stuff that you say is interesting, do you have any advice for ways to proceed towards the future, things that they, people can do to uh, try to avoid some of these long-term trends or is, is this inevitabilities? The first step is awareness. And this is the step that we haven't reached yet. But the first step is getting as many people as possible aware of how and why complexity evolves and what it means in terms of energy. So what can you do? Talk to your friends and neighbors about it. Talk to people about it online in whatever discussion groups you participate in. Try to educate people. Try to get as many people educated about these issues as you can. That's really all any of us can do. I talk to non-academic audiences. I talk to audiences of, of ordinary people, and I try to emphasize these points. And I find that people understand these points once it's explained to them. So this is what we all have to do. We all have a responsibility once you understand the fundamental issues involved to try to educate your friends and neighbors and relatives about these issues. And that would be my best recommendation.
And that finishes out our interview with Joseph Tainter on collapse and complexity and his book, Drilling Down, about the Deepwater Horizon incident. And we really covered a lot of ground in there in regards to the theoretical basis for why we're experiencing the things that we are in society today. And we covered a lot of the issues that lead to our energy problems. And perhaps for some of you, it really challenged some of your basic notions of what it means to have energy in society. Because we talked to Joseph Tainter about uh, renewable energy. And a lot of people point to renewable energy as the thing that we'll go to after the fossil fuel economy. And though I don't dispute that, everyone tends to, in the mainstream, talk about these renewable sources of energy as, you know, once we bring them online, they'll just replace fossil fuels. But what Joseph Tainter tells us through his uh, analysis and through the analysis of many others like Tad Patsik, who's the co-author of the Drilling Down book, renewable energy is not a replacement for fossil fuels. It's a great alternative, but it's not going to replace our fossil fuel lifestyle. And, and so what do you think that means, Seth? Do you think that more and more people are going to start finding out that there's no true replacement to oil? And if that's so, how can people rally around finding an alternative to oil when the only alternative is a much less materially wealthy standard of living. I think what you're describing there, Justin, is that capitalistic mindset that when scarcity and demand come into play and there's a profit to be had, then human ingenuity and invention will, will get us out of the situation. And with fossil fuels, we're coming to a very abrupt end of what has become the normal. We don't have any solution that will fill the place that fossil fuels has in our world. And we keep coming up to the fact again and again that humans don't take to change very well. And the only way that they adapt to new and different changing circumstances is when they're backed into a corner and their heads are under the vice and there's a gun against their brain and they can only make one choice, which is either adapt or, or die. And to put it into those bleak perspectives is the only way that humans right now are able to make effective, long-lasting change. And it's, it's a very sad thing that we can't always see those looming mountains of doom far out in advance and it takes that immediacy and it takes that that gun against our heads to actually make the change that we need to do. Yeah, two recurring themes of our conversation were one, the role of innovation in human societies and two, the inability for people to really look ahead. And the case that Joseph Tainter is making is that as a species, we've really just muddled through our existence for a really long time. And we get an idea and that idea, you know, organizes us and enraptures us. And then we take that idea as far as we can. And we see that happening now with neoliberal economics. We're reaching the end of what that idea can support. It's no longer able to exist because it just does not match physical reality anymore. And another point that you went to there was humans' ability to innovate our way out of it. And that's only been uh, a belief that's arisen in the last 100 years or so, or even a shorter time frame with economists like Julian Simon and his book, The Ultimate Resource 2.0, where he talks about the ultimate resource is human innovation. And any problem, we're going to just innovate our way out of it. And that's a really easy viewpoint to have when you've grown up in the age of fossil fuel abundance or all the net energy that fossil fuel gives us because you've seen tremendous change in society. You know, we, we built nuclear power plants and we've developed all these amazing technologies that have changed our world so much. 
but what Joseph Tainter was talking about and what he's got in his research, and you can find the published papers and his surveys that went all the way back to 1871 that found that patents per capita have been decreasing ever since then, he's making an argument that if you actually look at the data, what we think of as science and innovation can't sustain the unsustainable anymore. If you expect that we're going to suddenly make some breakthrough to develop some patent to, to get us out of this, the old models and the old ways of doing things that we've relied on for the, quite some time aren't going to be able to do it. And that's a really challenging notion for a lot of people. But what Joseph Tainter is challenging is he's using the scientific method to challenge our notions of scientism. And so we think of science as this institution that's just going to turn out amazing technologies and solve all our problems. And that's not what science does. Science is a method, and we've confused the method of science for the institution of science, which, as Joseph Tainter tells us in the interview, has just grown larger and larger and more interdisciplinary teams. And we learn in our history books about people like Benjamin Franklin, you know, flying a kite and getting struck by a lightning bolt and discovering electricity. And those kinds of discoveries aren't as available as they used to be. Now to do science, it takes a huge interdisciplinary team and billions of dollars to build yourself a large hadron collider just so you can collide particles at really high speed and unbelievable energies so that way you can perhaps argue that some of the particles may be traveled faster than the speed of light which isn't an insignificant finding by any means but the amount of time complexity and energy and money that it takes to do something like that is way different than flying a kite yeah you, there's no electricity to be found anymore right which is sad which is sad and Seth now that you are over in Europe Perhaps you have some new enlightenment on complexity and its role in society, especially in regards to sustainability. So Joseph Tainter was saying that one of the biggest misconceptions about sustainability is that it arises from conservation. And so there's a lot of people who are aiming for sustainability in society. And the way they do that is through, you know, trying to use less and trying to conserve. But he was saying that it's more about the science of continuity and understanding where we are in the historical time frame. And since you're in Europe, Seth, do you feel that Europe is inherently more sustainable than where you live in North Carolina? Well, in a lot of ways, Europe is a lot more sustainable. They embrace public transit a whole lot. I mean, that's one of the main things that you see right away when you come there is that nobody that really lives in the city usually drives around the city. They are either commuting by train, by bus, by bicycle, by, by motor scooter. Mo motor scooters are just plentiful everywhere you go. In France, where I was before, they are slowly getting rid of all the things that make driving in the city a, a luxury and a possibility. They're getting rid of lanes in the actual highways. They're, so they're just kind of making it so that all the cars just kind of mush together. You constantly see scooters running through the, the gaps of the cars and zigzagging between. Pedestrians have a lot of right of way in the cities. You can just basically walk out in front of moving traffic and they have to stop. And if you don't stop, I saw this one guy almost get hit by a bus and he turned around and spit on the bus. He's like, hey, you stupid bus, how dare you try to run me over? <laughs> so you, you can definitely see that as a way that Europeans are different than a lot of uh, American cities. You also see a smaller scales. So you have houses that are much smaller. They, 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 a whole family will live in an apartment that has you know three or four rooms instead of a big palatial McMansion kind of home. 
uh, which you normally would see in an American city. But you know, there there are still a lot of luxuries that come along with being in a city. I was just commenting to my friend as we were riding home on the bus after walking around all day that there there's enough electricity being burned lighting up the city to feed a small village in India. So you still have those excesses. You still have all the energy being spent in just in different ways a lot of times. So European cities are so dense and compact because they've packed so many more people into such a small amount of space. In the United States, we have so much more space and it covers so much more area. And to move from one area to another requires an incredible amount of energy expenditure. While in Europe, they've really learned how to live on top of each other. Europe has a population of about 857 million people. So you compare that to the population of the United States, which is a little over 300 million, and the population of Canada, which is like 33 million. Yes, and then you look up population of Mexico, it's about 113 million. So we're talking like 450 million. So roughly the population of Europe is almost double that of Mexico, US, Canada combined. It's and, pretty crazy. And what, like a quarter of. of the amount of land? Yeah, and it's so incredibly small. Someone told me the other day that Oregon and Washington State combined were mm-hmm. almost the size of Germany. And you think of how few people live in Oregon and just the number of people that live in Washington State. It's not a lot of people. And that's the size of Germany, which is a country of 81 million people. 81 million. 81 million in Germany alone. And so when we're talking about issues of sustainability, definitely Europe has learned to live with fewer space per capita and fewer point source emissions per capita. So like CO2, all those things per person are dramatically reduced because they do have such good transportation systems comparative to a lot of U.S. cities. But because of the number of people, I don't know if they're more sustainable than North America because each person has a much smaller footprint in Europe than a person in North America. But there's so many more people that it really adds up to quite an impact. Yes, it does. So what if we took out half the population in Europe and moved them over to the United States? What would happen then, Justin? The infrastructure in the United States isn't really built for such levels of density. Yeah, and a lot of people in Europe don't even have driver's license, so they would be kind of stuck. I remember I met a guy in Canada once out in like rural Canada camping, and he was from Norway. And he was like, when I first got to this country, I looked at it on the map and I was like, oh, I should be able to go from Nova Scotia to Alberta in maybe about a day. And then he was like, you know what? Canada's really big because Norway (laughs) is so much smaller. He'd only been used to looking at Norway on the map. And so for him, distance on a map was like, oh, you know, that's a day's walk. Not a big deal. That is an interesting point. When you look at a map of, of, say, like Barcelona, where I am now, and you see all the points of where things are. And you think of that on like an American scale. You're like, oh, this is humongous. But then you, you walk from one place to another and it takes you like 10 minutes. You're like, what? I just covered an incredible amount of distance. But in reality, it's not because the scale yeah. is so much shorter. And you can actually get around a lot faster just by walking. Exactly. And I think that's definitely one of the advantages that Europe has over the United States and looking at a peak oil, you know, energy depleted future is they do have such an infrastructure that's built to use less energy that shrinks the amount of distance you have to travel. Though the issue is the amount of people and the reliance on a really unstable currency at the moment. So if it comes down to an argument of saying like, 
which continent is more sustainable, North America or Europe? I really can't say. It's a really tough call. Europe is definitely yeah. more energy efficient. I've talked to my friends in Spain here about the 50% unemployment that we see for people of our age, where people are just struggling to find work. And a lot of my friends now who, who have gotten work a couple of years ago don't seem to be that affected. They have other you know, siblings and, and other friends who are rising up out of university now who are just struggling to find jobs and can't really find them. But in a lot of ways, life kind of seems very much the same, according to them. Uh, they still have the same kind of dreams and aspirations to have a home, to have a family. And you know, in Switzerland, where I, where I was yesterday, uh, I had talked to this one friend who is very much looking into buying a home so that would put her into debt for the next 30 years of her life. And she's not even blinking about the currency crisis. I don't, I'm not even sure that they, she's even aware of, of what's going on with the euro right now. So it's it's very interesting that most people seem to be living in a very much an isolated bubble and not really even caring. They, they know that something go, is going on. Like when I was in Italy a few days ago, my friend knew that there's talks to cut pensions in Italy and that it was going to be affecting people who had pensions, but she didn't really have any idea about how it would affect her life or those around her. So life is kind of going on as normal. Dreams and aspirations of the people here don't seem that affected. From the people I've talked to anyway, I haven't seen any mass riots like I've said before and maybe that that could change. I, I did talk to one friend who said that she did see some riots in the street in Italy some burning and some explosions and some police action. But people on the ground, they don't seem to be affected too much by it. Yeah, and I think, you know, we always criticize people in the United States about living inside a bubble and not understanding the greater picture. But that's really, as we spoke about with Joseph Tainter, a characteristic of the human species. And that's why he said, you know, price is such an effective mechanism for dealing with these issues because people respond to prices and you know someone can say I'm gonna go buy this house not thinking about the long-term consequences or risks of doing so but then suddenly when that's reflected in price they understand it well they may not have an intuitive understanding of the consequences of the euro crisis right now over the next few months as it deteriorates it really could start affecting prices dramatically like suddenly you show up to your atm and you expect to get euros and suddenly you have uh pesadas suddenly i don't care how disconnected you are from the news that's a big deal. Yeah, that's true. And when your job lays you off, that's going to be an even bigger one. Yeah. Special thanks to everyone who sent in donations. Really special thanks. And actually, we're so overwhelmed with gratitude. We're going to start doing something special for everybody that sends in a donation. You're going to get extra special bonus content. Well, what's this extra special bonus content, Justin? Well, this extra special bonus content is a talk or a lecture that I have recorded um, through various means and it will be on themes that we cover on the podcast. What it will actually do is give you a bit more depth and perspective on some of the issues we cover. Since last episode we got a donation from Veronica in Sanditon, BC. I hope I'm pronouncing that right because being in BC I hope I can pronounce it right. So thanks to Veronica from BC, thanks to David also from BC and Powell River. So really thank you so much David. Also our first donation from Australia, Ian. So Ian from Sydney, thanks so much. Thanks Ian. Thanks to Glenn in Murphy, Texas. So our first donation from Texas, 
and that's pretty awesome. And Glenn also sent us a really awesome email. He was saying that he was really well versed in the collapse narrative, but he was talking to his wife and saying that most of his perspective has been formed through at least uh, someone who's of Generation X or older. And that without something new after a while, we just really go through the motions of reinforcing all of our biases. And so he thought it was really refreshing to hear this younger perspective on things. And he called it all the doom without the gloom. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's, that's a good phrase there. So we got a really great email from Veronica. So she's sending out her first fan mail as her inaugural connection to the podcasting world. She's been listening to Fringe Media for a long time as a voyeur. But we have been the tipping point for her in rousing her to activism. Which, you know, is really what this show is all about and really, you know, made our day. I contacted Justin as soon as I got this email and I said, Justin, this is why we are doing the Extra Environmentalist and the reason why it's all worth it. Because if we can make sure that people know that we're with them and, you know, we're, we're putting out the call and there are others like those people out there, it makes it all worth it. Yeah, we have a conversation that we've recorded with Steve Lambert, who does a lot of activism around advertising and trying to get down all the illegal advertising in public space. And we talked to him about trying to make a piece of art for one person. And I think a podcast is one of the ways to do that because we really want to have an interaction with all of our listeners. And the ways that we open that up is through our website, you know, through comments that you can leave, or we have a link on the sidebar of our website where you can actually submit questions that you want us to ask that are on your mind. Either we can shape a show around it or we list out some of the guests we have coming up that we've confirmed dates with and we'll put those questions forward so you have the opportunity to get on there and add in your own personal touch and to help shape our questions. So we're going to try to make this as personalized as possible. A lot of other people have those exact same questions and it's not just uh, you. A lot of other people want to talk about these things and think about these things. But if you don't want to leave an email and you don't want to leave a voicemail, there's also our website where you can leave comments. And Darren left a comment on our website uh, regarding our conversation in episode 30 with David McNally. And he said that he didn't want to discount the observations and ideas put forward by David McNally, but he was really concerned that when people from higher education, the highly corrupt form of high, higher education that we have, speak about protest politics, he feels like it's a little off. And I totally know where he's coming from because when someone who's in higher education is talking about, you know, we have to go out there and find new ways of being and find new ways of doing, they're part of this kind of ivory tower infrastructure. But one of the things that's interesting about David McNally and also one of the th reasons why I'm here in Canada is because higher education here definitely has its problems, but it's not like the United States where you have to go $50,000, $60,000 in debt in order to gain an education. It's still affordable and you can still get a really good quality of education. You know, here at University of British Columbia, the school is 
unbelievably inexpensive to uh, work at as a graduate student. And it's one of the top research universities in the world. And quite frankly, a lot of other nations have figured out how to do higher education a lot cheaper. You know, like Australia. I'm sure, Seth, if you've interacted with people across Europe who are in higher education or, you know, went to college or something, they kind of told you how much it cost. It's a lot cheaper than what it is here, for sure. <laughs> I was talking to one of my friends in Germany, and he was saying it was like 200 euro a semester. And I was like, yeah, are you kidding I'm, me? Well, the girl that I stayed with in Basel, she said she's paying about 1,700 euro for the year. Wow. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, thanks so much for leaving a comment, Darren. And if you're interested in commenting on one of our episodes, you can get on our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and also leave us a comment. Thanks to Jamie at the Stepping Off the Edge podcast for recording a conversation between me and KMO. And if you want to hear all of our thoughts on podcasting and the narrative of collapse, check out the most recent episode from Jamie. I'll add in a link in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to everyone who went on Facebook and liked this and all the people who have started following us on Twitter. I'm going to try to tweet more. That's my uh, December resolution is try to tweet more. So thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate that you're tuning into the podcast on a regular basis, or if this is your first episode and you're still listening, hopefully that's a catalyst to go back and listen to some of our past episodes. So from Europe and from Canada, we wish you a great day. The shocks that we might experience in the future could create extraordinary opportunities for, for changing our societies and our economies and technologies. In fact, humankind frequently don't innovate in really profound ways that change whole societies until they are in a situation that's really an emergency. But whether we're going to be able to exploit that emergency effectively is going to largely depend upon whether we're prepared in the immediate term, in the medium term, to take advantage of those crises in the future. In other words, we need to be thinking about what we can take off the shelf and start to do when the crisis happens, when people are ready for answers, when the existing regime of energy consumption and of industries is now widely recognized to no longer be adequate and we need something new. And in each one of these shocks, as they happen in the future, another might be, for instance, a war in the Middle East that closes down a Middle Eastern production of oil for a period of time, and we see a very sharp rise in energy prices and oil prices as a huge impact on our economies. Each one of these shocks creates the possibility for following different trajectories into the future. We actually can't go back to where we were before. We can't wind back the clock and say, oh, gee, wish we hadn't made such a big commitment to nuclear because uh, it's turning out that it's not such a good idea. Now, that's the bad news, that there are these lock-in effects. The good news is that each one of these, these shocks provides what I call a moment of contingency. People are angry. They're scared. They're looking for answers. And if folks like you here have developed some answers, and if they can come forward and say, take this technology, we're already researching it, it's got a high probability of being very useful because we've already thought about the needs that we're experiencing right now because we've been anticipating this crisis. If we're ready to exploit the opportunities in those ways, it's much more likely that we'll follow a positive path 
into the future. And we're able to sustain the complexity from which we benefit in many ways, rather than have to face the alternative, which ultimately could be a society of an economy of radically reduced complexity. And yes, complexity provides us uh, with uh, problems, generates problems, and, and, and creates difficulties for us in many ways. But overall, when you look at what it brings us, I think the, the alternative of a radically decomplexified economy and society is one we would not happily contemplate. like ours, which has a very, very deeply rooted sense of entitlement. I want X, therefore I ought to have it. It, it really takes a certain level of maturity, and that's one of the most difficult things to, to encourage. You know, we can encourage it in ourselves. We can look at um, our own beliefs, our own fantasies, our own hopes for the future and say, okay, how realistic is this? And is there anything I can do that could actually bring this about? And we can also just look at the world and say, okay, well, leaving aside the fantasies, what can I do to make it a better place? But all of, none of that is as dramatic. I mean, it's, it's, it's much, much more exciting to think of, you know, vast waves sweeping over cities or Jesus appearing in glory in the clouds or what have you, than it is to think of, okay, well, well I'm going to go volunteer at a food bank. We are in a currency war. It is a war. So, you know, I'm going to read a headline. Be careful. It could just be propaganda from this bank. UBS's advice on what to buy in case of Eurozone breakup, precious metals, tin goods, and small caliber weapons. So this is from UBS, who's like, he's, they're one of the shriekers wanting the Fed to come bail out everything. So they said, quote, I suppose there might be some assets worthy of consideration should the Eurozone fall apart, precious metals, for example, but other metals would make wise investments too, among them tinned goods and small caliber weapons. And they go on to warn that basically we could have another World War II sort of situation. I think this is an amazing headline because UBS is a major bank, and they're basically taking the same position as Alex Jones takes. Are you sad about your firm taking over the world? Are you sad about exploiting people in Africa and India? Do you feel badly that your company has taken the food away from a small child's mouth? Well, no longer do you have to feel that guilt. 
Orlando Jean. Orlando Jean will take that sorrow and pain and turn it into happiness for you. Not only is he a well-renowned psychologist from the school of Harvard and Yale, but he has been around the world and has seen firsthand what corporations have been doing for you. Hi, I'm Orlando Jean, and you don't have to feel bad anymore. It's okay to be exploiting people all over the world. Let's take a look at some of my confidential sessions with some of my most important CEO families. Well, Orlando, it's been a really difficult month here for me. Turns out that our derivative fund based on the amount of African children that starve to death has not been returning the rate we've needed to give to investors. And it looks like we're going to have to shut the firm down and lay everyone off. I really feel bad giving out the pink slips to all of those hardworking people, but how can I ever get through the guilt that I've given to their families because they can't finance their house in the Hamptons? As you can see, our friend Joe here has a lot of guilt, but after we talked for a few months, he turned out to be a very happy man. Wow, thanks Orlando. Thanks to your unbelievable counseling skills, I feel like I can go on my jet ski anytime I want. In fact, sometimes I even fly there on my gold-plated jet. It's really comforting to know that there's someone like you in the world that can help me deal with all of these complex emotions. Orlando Jean. And it's not just CEOs that have to deal with this emotion. CEOs' families also have quite a lot of guilt. Let's talk to one of our CEO wives and see what, how she's doing with all the guilt. My husband always comes home after midnight. There's no time for our family. It looks like sometimes he's just working like crazy and he's so stressed out. I'm afraid he's going to get an aneurysm. What can I do, Orlando Jean? How can I make sure that I can support my husband and his many mistresses? Well, as you can see, she was dealing with a lot of guilt. I recommended she get a posturepedic bed so she didn't even have to hear her husband coming in at night and she could sleep soundly through his loud, raucous affairs. Let's hear how she's doing. Orlando, after you recommended that excellent brand of earplugs, now I can be sure that I'm emotionally there for my husband in the 20 minutes I see him in between the rounds of the unbelievably loud and wall-shaking sessions between he and his many mistresses. Now we can make sure that our house can stay financed and that we can keep sending our kids to the finest private universities. Thanks, Orlando. Orlando Jean. As you can see, CEOs, families, wives are doing a lot better with my counseling and support. Let's hear from one more person. Let's talk to young Jimmy Hoffman, whose CEO father has financed his way through Harvard Business School and now on his way to law school. I feel bad about my dad giving me so much money sometimes because I look at some of the other people in my classes and I realize that they're only there because they have a $50,000 scholarship and another $50,000 in debt that they're accumulating. But then I realize how much better my life is because I can go and buy as much crack as I really want to and then that just takes the pain away. Jimmy's crack problem was something that was tearing his life and his family's life apart. Not only was his mother trying to get addicted to the crack that Jimmy was buying, but his father started dabbling. It was really affecting this, the business practices of his firm. Let's talk to Jimmy after we've dealt with his crack problem. I've turned my crack problem into a business opportunity using the franchising ability that my father's firm can provide. Now, instead of using crack, we're selling it on the streets and my father now imports it from Colombia, where we only get the highest grade. Now we're turning my addiction into a business opportunity. Thanks, Orlando. We couldn't have done it without you. Orlando Jean. You too can benefit from Orlando Jean's wonderful help and advice. Contact me now and get ready to pay out your butt. 
I also have stored drugs there. Orlando Gene is not a crack dealer of any sort. He will not allow you to take your narcotics industry and then turn it into something that's profitable. There is no guarantee that your narcotics problem will become profitable within 30 days of seeing Orlando Gene. However, that does not mean that your narcotics problem cannot be a profit-making opportunity. We're just saying that Orlando Gene is not the man who can lay out the exact business model that you may or may not use. It gives me such quality satisfaction to be able to help so many of these very, very fortunate CEO families to deal with the large amount of guilt that they have to deal with on a regular basis. The money I've gotten from these CEOs has helped me fund orphanages around the world where I can further exploit young children in sweatshop-like conditions. The satisfaction that I feel makes my day just that much better. Thanks, Orlando. Thanks, Orlando. Thanks, Orlando. Thanks, Orlando. Thanks, Orlando. If you'd like to seek a counseling appointment with Orlando, please seek out your nearest Skull and Bones representative who can certainly find the number for you.